people pay good money to see this movie. When they go out to a theater, they want cold sodas, hot popcorn, and no monsters in the projection booth. Everyone pretend podcasting isn't boring. Turn it off.夢と夢は。なぜ覚めるのでしょう。一生覚めなければ夢は夢でなくなるのに。ほら、駅だ。ふらやびは。だりの I know Hey folks, welcome to a special episode of The Projection Booth. On this episode, I am talking with Will Carroll, the author of Suzuki Seijin and Post-War Japanese Cinema, and Peter Tatara, the brand new director of film at the Japan Society and founder of Anime NYC. Spoke with both of these gentlemen all about a program of Suzuki Seijin films that is coming up at the Japan Society starting this week. That's February 3rd, 2023. Though, you can see this program in other places. It will be heading into Canada in April of 2023. I highly recommend that you check out as many Suzuki films as you possibly can. And this is a great place to start. Enjoy the interview. Will, I have to tell you, I picked up your book a few months ago. And I have been wanting to interview you since then. So I'm glad that we're able to talk now, though this is more in the conjunction of the the events that are happening at the Japan Society uh, that Peter is putting on. So, like I said before we started recording, I would have figured that you guys had already talked before this, but I'm so glad to be able to to make this connection with the two of you. Absolutely thrilled. Yeah, I am a new uh, member of the Japan Society team. I think uh, Will has worked in detail with a colleague of mine, Alexander Fee, who I'm sure we'll speak about later in the podcast. Um, but I am Japan Society's new director of film, having been there for all of two and a half weeks at this point. Yeah, well, I'm I'm glad to hear that you've uh, been reading the the book and enjoying it. Um, and yeah, I'm happy to be here to talk to you about it and about the um, the series. What got you into Seijun Suzuki? When I was an undergraduate, I was kind of working my way steadily through like all of the films at the library that were released by Criterion Collection way back when. And I don't know how I came upon this exactly, but one night I, I was had just rented a bunch of them and I made a double feature out of All That Heaven Allows and Branded to Kill. And that was the first time I, had, uh, I ever saw a Suzuki film. Um, I have to say I actually 
didn't really like or get it the first time I saw it. I was just like very perplexed. Um, and it wasn't until a few months later when I first saw Tokyo Drifter that I, I got intrigued enough to seek out some more rare things, I guess. Later on, when I was in graduate school, I was taking a graduate seminar on sort of Japanese film theory. And I sort of learned in that seminar that Suzuki kind of stood at the intersection of a variety of different um, sort of theoretical and cultural trends around Japanese cinema, um, all of which I was really interested in. Um, and by that point, I was also just a very big fan of his films. And Peter, what brings you to the Japan Society? I've got a history over 20 years working with Japanese media and live events. I am the former head of guest and programming at New York Comic Con. I'm the founder of an event called Anime NYC, which is the largest uh, or the second largest Japanese pop culture uh, convention in the U.S. But Japan Society approached me about the opportunity to work with Japanese content all year round in the U.S. or all year round in New York and uh, take the reins of Japan Cuts, which is uh, Japan Society's annual summer film festival that hadn't occurred in recent years because of COVID. And it was impossible to resist um, being able to work with this organization that I've long respected and uh, bring Japan Cuts back to life. What is the whole idea behind Japan Cuts? So Japan Cuts is the largest contemporary Japanese film festival in North America. So it's run every year since 2007, with the exception of the COVID years, and annually presents 30-plus films, along with special guest directors and actors from Japan, really showcasing wonderful new works from Japan that typically don't have any other distribution or really any other screening opportunities in North America. It's one of, I think, the highlights of New York's film festival scene. It's something I've attended almost every year as a fan. To have the opportunity now to put my fingerprints on the next stage of it is, again, just absolutely irresistible. So, Will, what was it about Seijin Suzuki that appealed to you enough to write an entire book about him? Largely just realizing he was sort of a figure who inspired the sort of nascent um, cinephile movement um, in Japan in the 1960s. Um, and when you're starting to see the emergent of like independent film societies, um, both people screening um, films sort of independently of the studio distribution system um, and also like um, eight and 16 millimeter um, independent film production, like uh, many people working at, say, Wakamatsu Production Company, um, that is, um, were um, big fans of his and later collaborators. Um, the filmmaker uh, Obayashi Nobuhiko, um, who is famous for making House, um, was someone who was um, writing to film journals under pen names um, about Suzuki's films uh, while he was making some of his uh, eight millimeter um, independent work around like the early 60s as well. Um, so his connection to those um, sorts of things um, really interested me. Um, in addition to the fact that his films, um, and at that point I was mostly just uh, focused on the, the 60s ones, um, the fact that they were just um, 
so bizarre, but also, you know, um, very fun and easy to get into. Um, at that point, I wasn't necessarily thinking about um, sort of the later, more difficult ones yet, um, although eventually I, I did get into those quite a bit as well. Easy to get into, but difficult to find with subtitles for a lot of titles. I mean, over the years, Cold is My Passport, Detective Bureau 23, these things have slowly been coming out with subtitles, but it's still, there's still a lot of films of his that are not subtitled in English. That's true. And actually, the first time I wrote a paper on Suzuki was like my senior year of uh, undergraduate, which was about, um, I guess, spring 2009. Um, and at that point, there were far fewer films of his that had been released. Um, and basically no other um, Nikatsu filmmakers kind of working in, in similar genres um, that had been released at that point, um, sort of as a point of comparison, I think apart from maybe Crazed Fruit. So it was a really difficult time at that point to track down VHS copies of unsubtitled films. Um, and my, my Japanese language skills were not um, as high as they are now at that point. Um, so that was very tough. The fact that Suzuki passed away um, in 2017 um, at the age of 93, I guess, that is actually a large part of why I was able to see all of his films and in very good formats um, because it just so happened I was on a research trip in Japan when um, like all of the major sort of repertory movie theaters in Tokyo started doing like very extensive retrospectives of his work um, and they played all but I think about two of his theatrically released films in 35 millimeter um, so I was able to watch them that way and um also, as a, a graduate student, I programmed a, a series um, at the Film Society at University of Chicago that brought in a lot of subtitled prints from uh, Japan Foundation of some of his rarer films. So I was able to see um, a lot of them in, in very good formats that way. At the University of Chicago, Will had worked with a, a colleague of mine at Japan Society named Alexander Fee. Alexander was one of the chief people at Doc Films at University of Chicago. So way back when, that first Suzuki series was Alexander and Will. And thrilled now that this uh, spiritual successor brings them back together. Alexander is someone I was consulting when I was putting this sort of package of six films together. Um, even before I had really gotten funding secured or anything secured um, with Japan Foundation. Looking at the history of Suzuki and just, you know, his politics, were there any challenges with approaching Japan Foundation to, to help fund this series? It's very interesting to see, you know, this gonzo, bizarre, goofy, leftist director now being the subject of this Japan Foundation retrospective. I never got any pushback from Japan Foundation um, regarding these uh, films at all. Um, and somewhat surprisingly, um, just thinking about um, Suzuki's history with Nikatsu. Um, Nikatsu at this point is also sort of very interested in 
um, not only promoting their own um, like historical catalog abroad, but like really playing up their um, history with Suzuki and showing a lot of his films, which given the antagonism around the way he was fired at the end of the 60s is a little bit um, surprising. Um, but one thing that has been very that's made it much easier to study Suzuki than perhaps some other filmmakers around that time. And I'm not going to name any specific studios here. There are some major Japanese studios that are not at all interested in having their like historical films getting any kind of release and will probably ignore you if you try to approach them for rights or, or films or anything. So the fact that that Nikatsu um, and also Shochiku, the other um, studio that's the rights holder for a number of his films, are two that um, are interested in that sort of thing does make programming a lot easier for me. Looking at distilling his body of work down to six films, what led you to the final six films that are part of the retrospectives? Part of it is just a matter of what is in the Japan Foundation's film library. And from programming events um, with them in the past, I had a, a sense of what they did and didn't have, um, because obviously to get things shown throughout North America, you need English subtitled film prints. So I was already working with um, kind of those limitations in mind. Um, the idea was instead of to represent what I think are his best films or maybe his most famous films was to pick a representative sample of different stages of his work. Um, so there are two films that are like early Nikatsu films, uh, Satan's Town, which is um, sort of a film noirish crime thriller, um, more in line with what you might expect from him. Um, and then also Love Letter, um, which is a film built around like a romantic song. Um, it's only about 40 minutes long. And it's this very lush romance that was filmed on location in northern Japan. You know, 40 minutes long black and white cinema scope with like kind of remarkable dolly and crane shots in like difficult locations. Um, so it's it's a bizarre movie for reasons that you don't usually think a Suzuki movie will be bizarre. Um, but it's also, uh, I remember Alexander really liking that film, which is also part of why I included it. Tokyo Drifter and Carmen from Kawachi uh, for the late Nikatsu period, which is what he's probably most famous for at this point. Um, and I needed, I knew I needed one that was a recognizable title, which is why I used um, Tokyo Drifter, because I, I think it is maybe an easier gateway film for people who aren't familiar with his work than Branded to Kill might be, um, or even Gate of Flesh. Whereas Carmen from Kawachi, I think, is is one of his best films from that period, but it's not one that's available apart from this 35mm print that Japan Foundation has. Um, and then for the post-Nikatsu period, one of the Taisho films, um, obviously, but also um, uh, one of his sort of forgotten masterpieces in my mind, um, A Tale of Sorrow and Sadness, um, which is actually probably my favorite film in this selection of his works, um, which is a, a very bizarre kind of TV satire 
um, which is the the industry he'd been working in for about 10 years at this point, um, that kind of starts out almost like a straightforward sort of corporate satire that just gets sort of more bizarre as it goes on before um, ending up like someplace totally different from where you expected when it was starting. Obviously, you're talking about the Nikatsu period and, and the post Nikatsu. Do you divide it up by that or are there other ways of slicing his career up? There's not really a, a scientific way to do it, um, especially within the Nikatsu period itself, which is, you know, 40 films that he made in about 11 years um, and one television episode. Just because traditionally, um, when people have um, started paying attention to his work, like starts in about 1963, usually with like Youth of the Beast, followed by Panto Wanderer. The Flowers and the Angry Waves was actually one that um, a lot of people, like his fans in film clubs, were writing about at the time, but it's not as well known now. Um, And of course, Gate of Flesh. Um, Those are the films where um, you start to see these like um, sort of um, independent film journals and and film societies um, talking about a lot when they were released. Um, So I kind of use that as like the marking point for the late Nikatsu period. Yeah, starting in in 63 through the end of that. Um, And then anything before that um, as sort of the the early Nikatsu period, although you could divide it up um, even further than that. And Peter, tell me a little bit more as far as like some of these programs that you're inheriting and then what you're doing going forward. The, the uh, Seijun Suzuki Centennial, this has been a touring program that Will has worked together with Japan Foundation to, to create. So this has, throughout the course of 2022, has played at Bard, Duke, Berkeley, we're thrilled to present it at Japan Society in New York this February. And I think it's also playing in LA at American Cinema Tech later in February. Um, so this was a complete piece that uh, I'm thrilled to know host, um, but did not have any part in the echo programming of. Looking at moving forward at Japan Society this year, we will be presenting the next installment of the Globus film series, which is our annual spring uh, film series that has run the gamut um, over the past 15 years, exploring different directors and movements in Japanese uh, cinematic history. So we'll be doing our uh, latest installment of that. Um, and hopefully end of February, we'll announce the theme and the topic of this. Uh, but I think the first real programs that uh, I'll start to be co-curating um, and creating together with Alexander will be Japan Cuts this year. The big news is that Japan Cuts is back in person um, after a, a far too long of a delay because of COVID. And we should be able to knock on wood, start making announcements in March about the Japan Cuts dates um, and some of the uh, first films we're looking to present at the return of that live action festival. Overall, like my goals at Japan Society um, We've typically been an organization that pays tribute to the history of Japanese cinema. Um, and what I really want to do is balance that together with really an acute understanding of what Japan means today, 
my whole background, uh, spending 20 years within Japanese media and live events, is seeing the power of anime and manga and what that has done to bring a whole new generation into discovering Japan. You talk to anyone under the age of 30, and their window to Japan has largely been pop culture and wanting to find a balance between the glorious history of Japan society and Japanese cinema with the new young and broad audiences that love Japan and just what is it about uh, anime and animation that it really brought them into uh, discovering this whole new world of cinema that they've never seen before. Well, all of these films are on 35? All of them are on 35. Um, I think some of the places that have been doing retrospectives um, have added like a couple DCPs of other films. Um, like I know Rochester, which is playing them now, or um, the George Eastman Museum in Rochester, which is playing them now, I think and added a, a DCP of Branded to Kill. Um, and I guess Berkeley has their own 35 millimeter print of Fighting Elegy, so they played that as well. Um, but the six films that are are playing at Japan Society are all on 35 millimeter. Any chance of these coming to Detroit anytime soon? I mean, I wish. I looked for venues in that area. Um, I actually grew up in Birmingham, Michigan. Um, so that is actually a place that I, I really wanted to show a couple of these films. Um, so if you know of any good venues that can play 35 millimeter in that area um, and can like get me in contact with them, I would be very happy to try at this point. The one venue that I, I did try was the Michigan Theater in Ann Arbor, which um, I was told was like their their programming was already um, kind of too booked up too far in advance for us to, to get there. For folks that aren't in the know, where are these actually showing? Where is the Japan Society Theater? Of course, yeah. So Japan Society is right in Midtown Manhattan. We're at 333 East 47th Street. Japan Society is a year-round institution. We are home to gallery, a dedicated theater, language classes, all sorts of Japanese art, culture, and education. So definitely encourage uh, audiences to come in for the Suzuki Centennial, but also see all the other activities we have going, again, every other day of the year. And Will, I know a lot of people listening to this have probably seen Tokyo Drifter because that one, as you said, it's been available for a while but a lot of these other films aren't, you know, especially things like Carmen. Um, th that is not, I think I have a, a laser disc of that with no subtitles. So finally being able to see this with subtitles was fantastic. What can people expect with this program? Part of my intention with the book and also with the program is to give people a better idea of Suzuki's filmography as a whole. Certainly, I think something like Love Letter um, is probably going to challenge people's assumptions about the kind of filmmaker um, Suzuki is. And there are actually quite a few uh, other um, early films in his, or not just early films, other films in his filmography that aren't very well known that 
um, kind of are in the more melodramatic mode. And he was actually fairly good at that, partly because prior to being at Nikatsu, he was apprenticing at Shochiku um, under a, a director who specialized in melodrama. Um, and But once you realize that, you can also kind of see sort of techniques that are more closely associated with melodrama being used in very bizarre ways in a lot of his other films, just like some of the ways that he uses elements of weather, um, often in very kind of unnatural and um, almost overdone um, for dramatic effect ways like that. And in addition to that, I think it'll hopefully just the sense out that there are many more worthwhile films in his filmography that are not widely available and hopefully get people interested enough that we can see more of them get more widely released soon. And Peter, where's the best place for people to pick up tickets for this event? Right at japansociety.org. Well, thank you so much, gentlemen. It was such a pleasure talking with you today. Thank you very, very much. Thank you.